Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. Despite universal opprobrium, the traffic of persons for forced labour and sexual exploitation is a rife and rapacious industry pervasive around the world and here at home. Most trafficked persons in the United States are not smuggled nor kidnapped. They are legal residents induced by fraud or psychologically coerced to labour for their traffickers. Most trafficked persons are exploited for physical labour, but there is also a Stygian sex trafficking industry, including of children. San Diego, Chicago, New York, Tampa, St. Louis, LA, DC, Dallas, Detroit, Minneapolis and the Bay Area have all been identified as high-intensity child trafficking cities. Human trafficking is not simply the product of nefarious characters committing abhorrent acts. It exists within a wider socioeconomic structure and the weaker our labor laws and their enforcement, the more people are put in vulnerable situations that others will exploit. I spoke with Martina Vandenberg, the Executive Director of the Human Trafficking Legal Center, on this pervasive and pernicious issue and the legal framework for bringing claims against traffickers and providing restitution to survivors in the United States. Welcome to Gravity, Martina. Oh, thank you. So you're the founder and executive director of the Human Trafficking Pro Bono Legal Center. What are some of the services you provide pro bono lawyers that file civil claims on behalf of human trafficking victims? And what are some of the cases you've worked on? We hold the hand of pro bono attorneys working on trafficking cases across the globe. We have a database of every single case filed in the United States in the federal courts that we make available to attorneys who are working on cases on behalf of victims Our goal is for every trafficking survivor who wants a lawyer to have one, and our goal is for every lawyer who's handling a trafficking case to have robust support and technical assistance and mentoring so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel every time they're litigating a case, and also so that they have the benefit of all of the remarkable legal work that other attorneys have already done in the field. This is a new area of the law. It's only been possible since 2003 to file civil cases on behalf of trafficking victims. And when we started this work back in 2012, there were only about 67 cases that had been filed. That number is now closer to 300. And so lawyers are waking up to the possibility of holding traffickers accountable through civil suits. And trafficking survivors are finally learning that they have rights under federal law that they never knew they had before. That's fantastic. So this has only been possible since 2003, so it's a recent area of the law, right? It it is, relatively speaking. Uh, It's taken some time for lawyers to determine how best to file these cases. And interestingly enough, you had asked what cases we work on. I started working on these cases early after the law passed because many of the trafficking cases that appear in Washington, D.C. and Maryland and Virginia are diplomats who are trafficking their domestic workers. So the earliest cases brought under the law focused on domestic workers abused and exploited and held in forced labor, many of them in diplomatic households in major urban centers in the United States. Right. You wrote an article about this, and not just in the United States. May you please explain diplomatic immunity and residual diplomatic immunity for diplomats that have left their post and how these restrict criminal and civil liability, as well as how the United States has attempted to address these problems in bringing diplomats that abuse their domestic workers to justice? I think for a very long time, people 
erroneously assumed that immunity equaled impunity, that diplomats could absolutely get away with criminal activity in the country uh, where they were posted. But the reality of diplomatic immunity under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations, which covers the law of diplomatic immunity worldwide, the reality is that diplomats can be criminally prosecuted in the host country, but only under a very prescribed set of circumstances. If a diplomat commits a crime in the United States, including the crime of human trafficking, a law enforcement agency, the Department of Justice, or a local law enforcement agency must decide that they would prosecute that diplomat but for immunity. Once that determination is made by law enforcement, the State Department is required to go to the sending government of that diplomat and request a waiver of immunity. And as you can imagine, in 99.9% of instances, the country of origin for that diplomat says, no, pound sand, we're absolutely not waiving immunity. In that circumstance, the diplomat generally has to leave the country where they're posted. A diplomat who has had a request for immunity and where that request has been denied by their sending state, that diplomat can no longer remain. Once the diplomat departs the host nation, once they're outside the airspace of that host nation, their full diplomatic immunity 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all official and non-official acts shrinks down to what is really called official acts immunity. It shrinks down to what colloquially you might call you know, immunity nine to five, Monday through Friday. So the immunity that they retain after they leave their diplomatic posting is only the immunity for their official acts. And the excellent thing about the litigation that we've seen in the United States is that every court that has considered this question has ruled that holding your domestic worker in forced labor, raping your domestic worker in the home, abusing your nanny, none of that qualifies as one of your official acts. And so when diplomats leave the United States, if they are accused of criminal activity, including human trafficking, their immunity shrinks down to a point where they really only have the defenses of mere mortals, mere civilians. And they can certainly defend a case on the merit, but immunity will certainly not protect them from accountability. Now, similarly, when a diplomat leaves the United States, they then become... Uh, amenable to civil suits. So while it's unlikely that the United States government would try and extradite a diplomat and bring them back to the United States to face criminal charges, uh, it is possible to sue the diplomat in U.S. federal court for criminal activity that occurred on U.S. soil and to serve that diplomat abroad and, and bring them back into court in the United States to hold them accountable as a civil matter uh, for trafficking. Right. And the only way then that they could escape this is never to come to the United States, to not have assets in the United States or assets anywhere that the United States of, say, a judgment in absentia could capture, correct? In some cases, what happens is the diplomats just choose to ignore the litigation, praying that it will go away. 
But the litigation doesn't go away. And so where the diplomat refuses to engage and refuses to defend and fight on the merits, those cases end in default judgments. And the default judgments can be quite substantial, uh, millions of dollars. Then the difficulty is enforcing that judgment. So the attempt is always to enforce the judgment against the individual diplomat. But if the individual diplomat refuses to pay or if their assets cannot be identified in, in uh, a banking institution or a financial institution uh, where we could seize the assets, then the pressure moves to the sending state because sending states who have diplomats who are committing acts of trafficking in the United States, some of them you know, 10 miles away from the White House, those sending states bear a responsibility for providing a remedy. And so we press this diplomat sending state to make an ex gratia payment, so to pay the victim directly uh, an amount that the, that the victim is willing to agree uh, as, as settlement. Well, even if the judgment is unenforceable against a diplomat because they've hidden their assets or hidden themselves, uh, the sending state bears responsibility. Right. So is this what happened in the Swana case? And, and how important is this case in providing advice for litigation strategy in the future? The Swarna case, which was litigated pro bono by the law firm Deckert, provided enormously important precedent that all of us rely on to this day. The Swarna case involves a domestic worker who was allegedly held in forced labor and allegedly subjected to sexual abuse in a diplomatic home in New York. The Kuwaiti diplomat who uh, allegedly held Ms. Swarna, who held the domestic worker, litigated the case, uh, and the case went up to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on this question of immunity. And the diplomat lost on this question of residual immunity, how much immunity retains to that diplomat when the diplomat leaves the United States. And in light of the Second Circuit ruling, it is now the common interpretation of the Vienna Convention of that treaty that diplomats do not have immunity from civil suit once they leave their posting. Now, I should drop a footnote here and just note that not every diplomat has full immunity. They may all claim that they do, and they may protest loudly that they can't be um, touched in any way because they have full immunity. But the reality is that a large number of state officials posted here to the United States only have official acts immunity to start with. So World Bank employees, UN employees, uh, IMF employees, consular officials who are posted all throughout the United States to provide consular services to citizens uh, of their own country and visas for Americans who want to visit those countries. Those officials only have official acts immunity in any event. And so we don't have to wait for those officials to leave. Those officials can be criminally prosecuted and they can be sued civilly in federal courts uh, without any request for a waiver. The numbers are quite staggering. The ILO and the Global Slavery Index estimate that more than 40 million people may be held in such forced labor and sexual servitude across the world. Now, the State Department estimates that in 2014, there were only 10,051 prosecutions of human traffickers around the world. 
Now, what accounts for this incredible number of people that are exploited in forced labor and sexual servitude around the world, as well as for the discrepancy in the amount of prosecutions against traffickers? The situation is actually even worse, frankly, because the ILO and Walk Free acknowledge that about three quarters of the people who are held in forced labor and, and sexual servitude of all forms, about three quarters of those are held in actual forced labor in labor sectors, not commercial sex industry. And when you peel back the statistics a little bit more, only a tiny fraction of those 10,051 prosecutions are for forced labor. The vast majority of the prosecutions done around the globe are for sex trafficking. And so it's sex trafficking that appears on the front page uh, of newspapers around the world. It's sex trafficking that makes headlines. And yet it's forced labor in supply chains, forced labor on fishing boats, forced labor in garment factories, forced labor in mines. It's, it's abuse in the labor sector that receives almost no attention and, frankly, almost no effort on the prosecution side. So I think the, the, the numbers that we need to be most concerned about are the tiny, tiny numbers of prosecutions around the globe for forced labor. And you know, it, you are correct. This is a pernicious practice. It is a, a horrendous situation, all um, you know, all around the globe. And yet, we still, now 18 years after the anti-trafficking treaty was negotiated, the Palermo Protocol was negotiated and, and ratified and came into force. All these years later we still have a situation of impunity for trafficking. Traffickers face almost no risk that they will be held accountable for their crimes. They face almost no risk that they will be prosecuted. What we're trying to change is that risk assessment. So even if there is insufficient risk of criminal prosecution, there will at least be ramped up risk of civil litigation and civil accountability. Why do you think there's a discrepancy between prosecutions in the sense that prosecutors tend to focus on sexual exploitation and sex trafficking rather than um, forced labor? Well, I can speak to it in the United States because that discrepancy also exists here in the United States. So, for example, in 2016, in that fiscal year, by the government's own account here in the United States, there were 241 prosecutions. Of those, 228 were for, for sex trafficking, and only 13 were for labor trafficking. And in the United States, I think what accounts for that uh, is, is really two factors. First, law enforcement already has an enormous system of policing in the sex industry. It's an illegal area, and there's already intense enforcement activity uh, uh, in, in that area, in the sex crimes area and in, in prostitution. And so for that reason, 
law enforcement is already focused on that sector. In contrast to that, I think over the last two decades, we have seen the erosion and decline of labor protection and Department of Labor inspections. And so the law enforcement and compliance and regulatory mechanisms that might protect workers who are in regular situations of labor outside the sex industry, they just don't get the same attention. And, you know, prosecutors tell me the the labor trafficking cases are hard, that they're difficult to prosecute, uh, that they're difficult to they're, they're difficult to prove. The easiest cases in the United States, just based on the statutory requirement, uh, the easiest cases to prosecute are sex trafficking cases involving children under 18 because you don't have to prove force, fraud, or coercion. You can just show that a child was induced to commit a commercial sex act. Children can't consent to commercial sex acts. And so the person inducing that child to commit the act is already a sex trafficker. In the labor sector, you do have to prove that there was force, fraud, or coercion. You do have to prove that there's a nexus between the force and the labor. You do have to prove that the person was working because they lived in fear of a scheme or a pattern that made them believe that there would be harm that would befall them or someone else if they stopped working. And so the abuse is, is much, much more subtle on the labor trafficking side. The last thing I'll, I'll say on this is there's, a I think, a, a problematic myth that people are smuggled into the United States with coyotes illegally, and then they come to the United States and they're vulnerable and they're put in Uh, situations of trafficking, both sex and labor. And while that is true and while that happens, every single one of the clients I have ever represented here in the United States in trafficking cases, and by and large, those are labor trafficking cases, every single case has been someone who entered the United States with a legal visa. They came with a legal visa. They came with a contract in hand. They came with enthusiasm and excitement that they would be working in the United States at a legal job with a legal visa. And those workers are also vulnerable to exploitation. And I think it's largely because those work visa programs are insufficiently policed and insufficiently supervised uh, by federal government officials. I wanted to point out a case, David versus Signal. That was a case where a corporation that ended up being bankrupt, it lost in court, and thankfully, and it should have, had foreign workers that came to the U.S. on legal visas, but they were in camps with massive fences around them and in completely reprehensible, appalling conditions, working for less than the minimum wage. And, I mean, this might be a more prevalent problem that doesn't get into the news or doesn't get into the courts because the workers themselves might fear to go against their employer because obviously if your employer is giving you the visa to stay in the United States and you want to continue to stay in the United States, you have a bit of a problem if you want to complain about your employer. 
That is exactly right. I think visas that are tied to employers chain workers to those employers. If you face the danger of becoming undocumented the moment you exit your employer's workplace, the moment you quit, you will think twice and three times and ten times before you try and escape, even if the conditions of work rise to the level of forced labor. And even if the situation is involving egregious exploitation, and because the because the employers are connected to the visas, and because the workers can't leave, it gives the employers remarkable power to control the workers. It provides the employers with the ability to threaten workers with deportation, the ability to tell workers that they will be out of status, the ability to uh, tell workers that they, the employer, can call immigration on them and get them deported. And so those, those chains are as powerful as physical chains. They, they leave the workers terrified and afraid to leave. Now, the Signal case is remarkable because the Southern Poverty Law Center brought that case originally as a class action, and the class did not get certification, and so the case had to proceed broken up into little cases with smaller numbers of plaintiffs. Those cases were lined up like dominoes ready to go to court. And the Southern Poverty Law Center, together with Pro Bono Council, took the first case to court on behalf of five victims, and the verdict was $14 million for those five. And it was a jury trial, a very lengthy jury trial with extensive evidence. And you mentioned the man camps where these workers uh, were forced to live. Evidence in trial, according to the lawyers who litigated the case, showed that Signal, the company, viewed the man camps as a profit center because they were withdrawing money from the men's paychecks in order to cover the housing in these appalling conditions. And when the workers said, no, we don't want to live in these man camps anymore, we'd like to go rent our own apartments, Signal said, you can go rent your own apartments, but you still have to pay rent for the man camp. So the company was making enormous profit by exploiting these workers, not only by underpaying them, but through an enormously complex array of deductions and wage theft. After the $14 million judgment came down from that jury, the company, as you note, did did, uh, actually declare bankruptcy. But, But luckily, the Southern Poverty Law Center had arranged for multiple pro bono law firms. So each set of plaintiffs had their own pro bono counsel. It was an an enormous task to find lawyers for all of these workers. Among the pro bono counsel partners that the Southern Poverty Law Center found uh, was pro bono bankruptcy counsel at a large law firm at Skadden. And that bankruptcy council was able to uh, reach a settlement, a global settlement for all of the workers uh, for $20 million. 
and so the bankruptcy was not uh, was not fatal for those workers. I think many of them uh, were able to recover. The fallout from that case has been problematic because uh, the government in, of India has been retaliating against trafficking victims trafficked to the United States in in ways that are extremely harmful and in ways that I think violate international law. So there there has been fallout from that case. So may I please interject and ask what the Indian government is doing that you think is against international law and is stopping human trafficking victims getting justice? The government of India has retaliated against trafficking victims in the United States by refusing to give them passports, by refusing to allow their family members to join them here in the United States, even when those family members get U.S. visas to come to the United States. And the the Indian government has been marking the passports of trafficking victims who are in the United States with notices uh, that they have T-visas and they're trafficking victims, which is a huge violation of privacy. It's really inexplicable to me that a government would punish its own people who are victims of crime in the United States. It's unusual, but that has been the norm uh, really over the last two years. Yeah, and the Indian government protected, um, I believe, a diplomatic worker yeah, here. Yeah, Gotti. Yeah. Cobra Gotti. The, the, the Indian government behaved appallingly in that case. And in fact, Cobra Gotti did not have diplomatic immunity. The Indian government decided to change her posting and change her position in the United States after the fact so she could be moved to a different position where she would have immunity. And so that diplomatic, that legal sleight of hand, which was beyond obnoxious, uh, caused Cobra Gotti to have diplomatic immunity. To its credit, the United States then did ask for a waiver of immunity, and Cobra Gotti did have to leave the United States. Uh, and after she left, the Department of Justice and the Southern District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, um, had the indictment reissued. So Cobra Gotti is still under indictment. And just to explain to our audience, the issue in the case was the exploitation of a domestic worker that had signed a contract to be paid at least the minimum wage as a domestic servant in the United States, which is how you get a visa for domestic workers to enter the United States in your diplomatic entourage, but this was completely changed. You know, interestingly enough, this was indicted as visa fraud, and Cobra Gotti had one version of the contract to get the visa and then immediately had the victim sign a different version of the contract, completely contradictory. There is no clear-cut set of evidence for visa fraud than that. And so the case was not indicted as a trafficking case, but it is clear that the victim in that case was severely underpaid by Cobra Gotti. And it's also clear that Cobra Gotti, by issuing these two contracts, uh, was, was trying to obtain a visa when she didn't actually intend to pay the worker legally in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's appalling. 
We've been talking about how the Indian government hasn't respected its international obligations. But I want to now talk about the United States and its international obligations and just detail the international framework. So before you mentioned the UN Palermo Protocols, and that includes the protocol to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children, which is a supplement to the UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime. There's also the ILO Convention 105, the Elimination of Forced Labor. Now, in your opinion, is the U.S. complying with its international obligations? I think the U.S. has excellent laws on the books. And those laws, I think, by and large, comply with the requirements under Palermo. One of the requirements under Palermo is that victims have an opportunity to pursue justice and that victims have an opportunity to pursue compensation. One of the places where we see uh, failure here in the United States is in implementing the excellent laws that are on the books. So under U.S. law, victims are required to receive mandatory restitution in criminal cases. So when there's a criminal prosecution and a conviction or a guilty plea, the prosecutors are required to ask and the courts are required to grant restitution to that victim to make that victim whole. So if it's a forced labor case, the victim should get back wages. If it's a sex trafficking case, the victim should obtain back from the defendant all the money that the victim was forced to earn for that defendant. And unfortunately, in our own research, where we have looked at all of the cases since 2009, and traced those indictments all the way through to sentencing, what our research showed was that trafficking victims who should receive restitution mandatorily in 100% of those cases that qualify, uh, they're actually only receiving restitution orders in 36% of cases. And there are a host of reasons for that, but it means that we are not in compliance with our own law. And I think the Department of Justice is working to train prosecutors so that they're more aggressive about asking for restitution. I think there needs to be an effort to train judges so that the judges understand that restitution is required for trafficking victims. But we we have a long way to go. I've worked on human trafficking now for about 25 years. And what I realize, having interviewed so many survivors, it's wonderful to get a visa, right? It's wonderful to get a T visa and be able to remain in the United States. It's wonderful to be able to access, you know, programs that provide some short-term support. But what trafficking survivors need desperately is money. And I mean, think about it for a moment. If you're held in a situation of human trafficking for a decade, um, you have lost all of that income. You have lost all of those years of work. You have lost all of the opportunity to save for retirement. You have lost all of the opportunity to to build up any kind of, of nest egg to support yourself and your family. And that that is difficult to recover without mandatory restitution. And it is very difficult to come back financially from the devastation that human trafficking wreaks on people's lives. Now, this isn't just a problem in the United States. This is a problem globally as well. And 
this very difficult conundrum of how you obtain compensation for trafficking survivors around the globe, I think plagues many of us. I think many advocates and lawyers struggle with this issue. In the Netherlands, when there's a restitution order in a trafficking case, the Dutch government has a certain period of time to collect the money from the defendants. And if they can't collect the money from the defendants within that period of time, then the treasury funds the restitution. So the state actually pays the victim restitution. In the United States, when a victim brings a civil case against a trafficker, we can sue the trafficker for damages, including punitive damages. The the law in the United States allowing civil suits is quite extensive and and excellent. When we sue for damages, we can win significant amounts. But again, there's the heavy lifting of enforcement that follows. And lawyers have to be completely committed and utterly dogged to try and collect the money that trafficking survivors win in court. So I think it's not just the United States. I think all countries have a long way to go in terms of making trafficking survivors whole and helping them rebuild their lives. And and we're definitely not there yet. That's unfortunate to hear. When we're talking about restitution orders, we're talking about the restitution order under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, correct? That's right. So under this act, there are two types of damages for personal losses incurred by the victim and for the economic value of their services. Now, as to the latter, it seems there's an unfortunate controversy with respect to people that have been sex trafficked because of the illegal nature of the sex industry in the United States. Now, I think it's completely reprehensible to deny people that were forced to be in sexual servitude restitution and also have them under threat of criminal prosecution. However, it seems that there was a recent case, the U.S. against Lewis, that calculated restitution for the victims based on how much the uh, offender received from them. Now, could you please elaborate a little more on the the particular problems that victims of sex trafficking have in the United States to obtain restitutionary damages, as well as um, how these damages were calculated in the United States against Lewis? So there are two very separate streams of compensation for trafficking victims. The the restitution stream is really only out-of-pocket expenses and lost earnings and uh, value to the defendant. So back wages, value to the defendant, and out-of-pocket expenses. So in the context of a criminal case, we can never get punitive damages. Those would have to be litigated in a civil case. So in the civil case, we can get extensive damages for punitive harm, for other torts, for negligence, for infliction of emotional distress, for physical violence. The the, the civil case generally yields uh, compensation for victims in numbers that are higher than they are in in the criminal cases. But the criminal cases are important for two reasons. So the way the law is written, 18 U.S.C. 1593, which is the restitution portion of the trafficking statute here in the United States, provides for victims who are held in forced labor to 
receive back wages under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and then also to receive any out-of-pocket damages, any out-of-pocket costs. So if they have to pay a counselor, they can recoup that loss. If they have to um, pay for childcare, they can recoup that loss, et cetera. On the sex trafficking side, Congress created a very uh, interesting remedy because you wouldn't want to say to a child held in the sex industry, you know, you were held 14, to, 14 hours a day, we're going to pay you seven twenty-five an hour. That wouldn't be an appropriate remedy. That wouldn't be an appropriate measure. What Congress decided to do was a kind of disgorgement remedy. And so the children who are held in the sex industry will frequently have quotas. One child might have a quota of $1,000 a night. Another child might have a quota of $500 a night. The children don't generally remember how much they earned. They don't remember whether they made their quota every night or not. And so in the U.S. versus Lewis case, the court ruled that you could take the quota and simply multiply it by the number of days that that child or that uh, person was held in forced prostitution. And whatever the number is, the quota times the number of days, that's the measure for mandatory restitution. It's very important for advocates who are working with victims of trafficking to press prosecutors to use 18 U.S.C. 1593, the trafficking statute, because to the extent that trafficking restitution is ordered under that statute and not another, it's tax-free. And so the victims don't have to pay income taxes on that money based on a notice that came out of the federal treasury. And that's enormously important because imagine from the perspective of a trafficking victim, finally obtaining restitution for all of the years or weeks or months you were held in forced prostitution or commercial sexual exploitation as a child or forced labor. And then suddenly realizing that although you've received this money, from the courts, uh, you now owe a significant percentage of it to the IRS. So fortunately, the Treasury Department undercut that particular danger with a memo that they issued in 2012. But if the restitution is ordered under the wrong statute, or not, or not ordered at all, frankly, uh, then, then the victims are in deep trouble financially. It can be extremely difficult for them. My colleague, Alexandra Levy, and I wrote an article together and published an article on mandatory restitution specifically in sex trafficking cases. And unfortunately, what that research revealed is that the least likely people in the United States to get criminal restitution in trafficking cases are child victims of sex trafficking. And that's counterintuitive because in the United States, everyone talks about child sex trafficking mm. and it's the issue that's constantly highlighted by the Department of Justice and the one that gets the most attention in the press and the one that is, you know, most discussed uh, in policy circles. So how troubling it is that those children are the least likely to get mandatory restitution. And as we took a step back and thought about this, our realization was that child victims of sex trafficking also are the least likely people to have lawyers. 
they are the least likely victims to have counsel, pro bono counsel, victims' rights counsel. People who are trafficked to the United States who are foreign-born adults generally have lawyers. And our research showed initially that trafficking victims who are foreign-born held in forced labor receive restitution orders 99% of the time. Maybe that's a coincidence, but I doubt it. Um, I think it's very important to have a lawyer for the victims in the, in the criminal cases. You also brought up this issue of the illegality of the work. Now, every single appellate court in the United States that has looked at this has said that the illegality of the work in the sex industry is completely irrelevant. Congress has mandated restitution whether or not the work is legal. Unfortunately, the only place where we see trafficking victims in forced labor not getting restitution are cases in which the underlying work is illegal. So the one case in our initial set of research uh, data sets that we, that we uh, investigated, the only case where the trafficking victim did not receive restitution in a forced labor case was an incident where the forced labor was selling illegal CDs. So selling pirated CDs. This allergy to illegal work, this allergy to illegal wages, I think permeates the entire discussion of restitution that we see sitting on federal court dockets. What do you think is the uh, reason for that? I suppose courts might fear that they would be encouraging illegal conduct, although I think that argument would be extremely weak, to say the least, because the people that are the victims of human trafficking, they're either induced by fraud, pressure, or other means, or even forced to be the victims of trafficking. <laughs> they don't choose to do that. So I'm, I'm not really sure where the allergy that you speak of is coming from. What, what is your opinion as to that? I honestly wish I knew. I, I, I frankly don't know. The only reasonable explanation uh, is that defense attorneys manage to sort of undermine the victim's rights to restitution by clouding the court's vision about whether or not this is a deserving victim or not. The law says nothing about whether or not someone deserves restitution. The law simply says it's mandatory. We definitely want to have people that commit such offenses pay for those offenses. However, I think it's even more important to provide restitution to the victims because otherwise, how, as you mentioned earlier, how can they rebuild their lives? And really, if we're victim survivor focused, we need to help these people rebuild their lives. And just focusing on you know, punishing people for doing these reprehensible things, I mean, that's all well and good to deter other people. But in the end, how are we helping the people that have endured such exploitation? I could not agree more. The real tragedy here is this chasm between law and reality. I spoke to someone at the United Nations a few years ago and discussed our research findings about the failure of the United States courts to award restitution orders. And 
the UN official I was speaking to said, this is so troubling because we had touted the U.S. example and the U.S. law as a model for the world. And now this evidence reveals that it is a model in name only and that the reality does not measure up to the promise of the law on the books. And I think we need to be very careful about examining what actually happens in the trenches, what actually happens in the courts. We can't take these numbers at face value. We can't take these statutes at face value and assume that what we see in black and white on paper reflects what occurs every day in courthouses in the United States. With respect to looking at what really happens on the ground, how does that work when the prosecution doesn't end up going to trial, but they accept a plea bargain from the defendant? I mean, do they usually put in some restitution to the victim? I mean, how does that work? And if so, is it still tax-free? That is a brilliant question because you're right. The vast majority of cases in the United States end in plea bargains. Very few cases go to trial. What very competent prosecutors do is include language about restitution in the plea agreement. The prosecutors can negotiate with the defendants about restitution. And in fact, prosecutors can negotiate plea agreements that require defendants to prepay their restitution obligations at the time of sentencing. For victims, best case scenario. A trafficker arrives at sentencing with a cashier's check for the full amount of restitution owed, and the victim then obtains the restitution instantaneously. It is significantly more difficult when there is a conviction and a restitution order, and the trafficker has no interest in paying the restitution order, and the Uh, Courts don't vigorously enforce the restitution orders. And so plea agreements can actually be a blessing in disguise if handled appropriately. If prosecutors request restitution in specific amounts in the plea agreement and then also demand prepayment of restitution prior to sentencing, it can have an enormous impact on whether or not a trafficking victim actually collects the money at the end of the day. And the money would be tax-free? It can be. If the prosecutor intelligently negotiates the plea agreement to include restitution under 18 U.S.C., the proper statute, then the restitution, even awarded through a plea agreement, can be tax-free. And because the damages are cumulative of this If you initiate a civil action after, you can still claim all the damages under the civil action, correct, including punitive damages, even after a restitutionary order or even after you obtain restitution under a plea bargain? What happens in that circumstance is the case uh, goes to sentencing on the criminal side. A restitution order can be put in place. And then the follow-on civil suit 
seeks to obtain all of the additional damages not covered by restitution. Plaintiffs don't get to collect twice. If the restitution orders covers back wages, the victim does not recover back wages again in the civil suit. But a victim can recover additional damages on top of the restitution, including damages for negligence, damages for torts, damages for breach of contract, damages for all of the civil claims that you would normally associate with, with, a, with a civil trial, um, as well as punitive damages. And the courts have become very creative about assessing punitive damages. Some judges have decided that the only way to handle a punitive damages calculation is to find a number that is the proper measure of punitive harm each day the victim is held. So some courts have said, for every day you were held in forced labor, we will pay you $8,000. For every day you were held in forced labor, we will pay you $500. The courts differ on the amount per day, but one methodology that courts have begun to adopt is this sort of daily measure of punitive harm and punitive damages calculated by the number of days the person was held. And now I just want to move on to a different topic. I believe we touched on it before, but with respect to victims of trafficking that were either in sex trafficking or forced to do other illegal conduct, for instance, you talked about uh, intellectual property piracy, is there a threat of criminal prosecution and are there lawyers needed to do pro bono work for vacation of uh, these offences? Unfortunately, even now in 2018, we do see victims of trafficking who are prosecuted. And the problem occurs most frequently with people who are trafficked into the sex industry or children who are held in the sex industry. Federal law states that anyone under 18 who commits a commercial sex act is a trafficking victim. State law and local law do not track with federal law. And so I was in one jurisdiction recently where children testifying against their trafficker in a federal criminal trafficking case, serving as witnesses in that case, faced prosecution by local authorities for, for prostitution based on the same operative facts. If you are 14 or 15 or 16 years old, the cognitive dissonance caused by the idea that you are both a victim in one case and a criminal defendant in another case based on the same operative set of facts must be so disconcerting. And there's a wonderful lawyer in the United States, uh, Kate Mogulescu, who is one of the people who spearheaded vacature of criminal convictions for trafficking victims. And so laws have passed across the United States allowing trafficking victims who were forced to commit criminal acts by their traffickers to vacate those convictions. Kate, who is a public defender, in some cases has managed to vacate 70, 80, 90, 100, and more convictions on trafficking victims' records for crimes they were forced to commit. The thing that's troubling, of course, about this is 
No one asked. Those victims ran through the system on dozens and dozens of occasions. And as they were prosecuted for these crimes, no one asked whether they were working voluntarily. No one asked whether they were being held against their will. No one offered them services. We are working now to undo the harm caused by decades of ignorance and decades of cruelty against trafficking victims. Now, I just wanted to move to uh, UNT visas. Uh, UNT visas aid trafficked persons who are without proper documentation to stay in the United States. Do they provide sufficient protection for trafficked persons and their security uh, in the United States? T-visas for trafficking victims became available at least statutorily in 2000. The regs came down later in 2003. T-visas allow trafficking victims to remain in the United States. The visas allow trafficking victims to bring their family members to the United States. T-visas allow victims to obtain benefits, including Medicaid and other benefits, to help them survive after they initially escape. And T-Visas put trafficking victims on a path to obtain green cards and eventually to obtain U.S. citizenship. The happiest moments in my career have been trips to the airport with mothers who were trafficked to the United States to pick up their children. Sometimes they haven't seen those children for a decade. And those reunions in airports that are facilitated by the issuance of T-visas and T-derivative visas for eligible family members, those moments, I think, for many anti-trafficking lawyers mark the happiest times in our in our careers. The other uh, sort of wonderful benefit conferred by T-visas is potential citizenship. And the other happiest days of my life as as an anti-trafficking human rights lawyer uh, are the days that I spend watching clients sworn in as citizens. That remedy, those benefits are remarkable. And the T-Visa is a model for the rest of the world. Many countries around the world do not provide any immigration benefit or skimpy immigration benefits or temporary, extremely temporary immigration benefits to trafficking victims. Now, the T-Visa is not completely without critics. Some critics point out that in order for an adult victim to obtain a T-Visa, he or she must cooperate with federal law enforcement, or he or she must prove that they have such debilitating trauma that they couldn't cooperate with law enforcement. Children do not have to cooperate with law enforcement in order to obtain a T-Visa. So there are critics who point out these sort of problematic aspects in terms of the quid pro quo to get a T-Visa. But by and large, I think advocates agree that the T-Visa is an enormously powerful tool, both for regularizing the status of trafficking victims so badly exploited in this country, but also for uh, facilitating prosecutions and facilitating uh, facilitating reporting to law enforcement. And are there victims that have trouble with 
going to court and aiding prosecution in order to obtain the T visa because they fear their traffickers? So you don't actually have to go to court to get a T visa. You just have to report. If you file a report with law enforcement, even if law enforcement never calls you back, you have made it clear that you are willing to cooperate. And once you've made it clear that you're willing to cooperate, if law enforcement does call back and does follow up with you, you do have to cooperate and, and and provide testimony or prove that you're too traumatized to cooperate. Unless you're a minor. In, in answer, unless you're a minor, exactly. And so, it, but in answer to the broader question you've posed, are victims frequently too terrified to testify? Absolutely. I talked to a federal prosecutor just yesterday who said in one case, one of the victims felt so terrified of the trafficker and testifying in front of the trafficker that the prosecutor put the victim on the stand, uh, realizing that the victim wouldn't and couldn't testify just to illustrate the level of terror that that victim felt when confronting the trafficker. And prosecutors will say that it's almost impossible to get a jury to convict a trafficker unless the jury hears from the victim. And so we have a conundrum of how you can maintain a victim-centered approach and listen to the victims and uh, engage in trauma-informed advocacy and still deal with the reality that prosecutors want and demand victims to testify. Now, I want to make one distinction here because many of the cases I deal with are forced labor cases. And in the forced labor cases that I have dealt with, my clients are desperate for a criminal prosecution. My clients beg for a criminal prosecution. My clients desperately want to see the perpetrator go to prison. And in many of those cases, the federal authorities don't prosecute. And so one of the reasons I started doing civil litigation full-time for trafficking survivors and encouraging other attorneys and training other attorneys to bring civil suits on behalf of trafficking victims One of the reasons for that is because I was tired of watching trafficking survivors in my office who had cooperated for months and sometimes years with federal prosecutors who desperately wanted to see their their, their, uh, traffickers put behind bars, watching them weep because the prosecution had just been dropped. And Once the prosecutor drops the case, there's little we can do to cajole or convince them to reopen and and bring the case. And in the absence of a federal indictment, sometimes going to civil court and holding your trafficker accountable in civil court is the next best thing. It's the the substitute that we um, have at hand and can use. And some of these cases go to a jury. There was just a case in Virginia where a woman held in forced labor and domestic servitude and sexual servitude while she was held in that home, testified before a jury in Virginia, and the jury unanimously awarded her $3 million. As they should. (laughs) That That case wasn't prosecuted. Which is why it's important that we have civil remedies. We've been talking about the legal framework and how to obtain restitution, for victims and how to prosecute offenders. Now I want to talk about identifying 
victims of human trafficking. It seems that the problem is so pervasive that many of us might have encountered a victim of human trafficking and not known about it. I understand that the State Department and the Office of Homeland Security have focused on awareness training. Um, The State Department, for instance, on its website has awareness training and community reporting. And then Homeland Security also has initiated the Blue Campaign. Now, in your opinion, have the Blue Campaign and other awareness initiatives by the government brought this issue to the forefront? How can our listeners spot human trafficking in their community in order to be able to report it? The Blue Campaign has done one thing, I think, brilliantly, which is bringing in survivors to review materials. And so trafficking survivors have become much, much more in the forefront of the leadership of the anti-trafficking community. And they have expertise that those of us who are just lawyers and have no lived experience cannot bring to the table. We simply don't have that expertise. So trafficking survivors have consulted with the Department of Homeland Security and with the Blue Campaign to create materials that much more closely resemble reality. Not this mythology of human trafficking that we see in the movie Taken and the Hollywood version of trafficking, but much, much more subtle trafficking, uh, which is the kind of reality on, on the ground, which trafficking survivors understand far better than any of us. If anyone sees a child who seems to be engaged in commercial sex, that is not just a red flag, that is a red tornado. And children cannot engage in commercial sex work. And so that is automatically a trafficking case. So anyone who sees that should should definitely report that. We're seeing a wave now of lawsuits against hotels as third parties allegedly financially benefiting from human trafficking. And among the allegations against those hotels are allegations that the hotel staff knew that girls were being held in in uh, commercial sex in the hotel rooms. And the hotel either turned a blind eye or in some cases allegedly facilitated uh, clients coming to the hotel to have sex with children, which is abominable. <laughs> so that's, that's really uh, an abomination. And so there are efforts now focused on child sex trafficking that seek to cast a wider net in terms of people who could potentially be culpable for that harm. That said, I think we all need to take a step back and realize that forced labor infuses our lives absolutely every day. It's not just about, you know, invisible people at the nail salon who are doing your pedicure who may be held in forced labor. And it's not just you know, adult women held in forced prostitution in, you know, hotels down the street from you. It's the cobalt in your cell phone. It's the fish on your dinner plate. The supply chains at this point are so tainted with forced labor that I think it's incumbent upon all of us to try and figure out how we can deal with impunity for forced labor and supply chains, but also you know, consumer accountability, to hold companies accountable, to boycott companies, to sue companies where there are credible allegations of forced labor in supply chain where the corporation knew or should have known. So one of the things that's happening that I think is exciting in the 
accountability world is an effort to hold corporations accountable for forced labor permeating their supply chains. And one thing that Congress gave us as a tool is a law passed in, in uh, 2008, 18 U.S.C. 1596, which provides extraterritorial jurisdiction for trafficking cases. So if the perpetrator is a U.S. citizen, if the perpetrator has a green card, or if the perpetrator is present here in the United States, that trafficker can be taken to account both criminally and civilly in U.S. federal courts. That's remarkable. That's a, a, a real vehicle for accountability, even for extraterritorial cases. That's fantastic. So what are some of the other main changes, whether in the drafting of new laws, the interpretation of current laws, or even in litigation strategy? You just talked about suing corporations to hold them account. What other changes do you believe we need right now to make the most advances in the, in the prosecution and elimination of human trafficking and in providing due restitution and protection of victims? I would suggest three remedies. One is we need to close this gap between laws on the books and implementation of laws on the books. And in doing that we also need to focus on number two, which is collection of restitution. One of the problems that we identified when we did our research was the fact that the federal prosecutors forfeited assets of traffickers, but then did not use those forfeited assets for restitution, but rather routed those forfeited assets to the Department of Treasury. The federal government should not be collecting money from traffickers as forfeited assets when the victims who actually faced force, fraud, or coercion to earn those forfeited assets leave empty-handed without a restitution order and without any collection of that restitution order. One of the things that we've focused on very heavily over the last few months is extensive follow-up on restitution enforcement and actual payment, including payment with forfeited assets. So that's a very technical fix that could have an impact on trafficking survivors' lives in terms of, in terms of collections. And the last thing I'll say, the third, the third remedy I think we need to see is increased labor trafficking enforcement because the number of labor trafficking cases is appallingly small. Um, that's not just a U.S. problem. That's a global problem. If forced labor is not prosecuted, forced labor will not stop. If forced labor is not, uh, is, is, is not considered a, a risk factor, corporations and individuals will have no incentive to change their behavior. And so we need to see a significant ramping up of investigations and prosecutions for forced labor, both here in the United States, but also in the kind of international global uh, supply chain. I vehemently agree. We really need to strengthen labor protections across the board, because if we have strong labor protections across the board, that gives less incentive and less ability for corporations and private individuals to exploit workers even further 
when we have very weak labor protections, corporations tend to push and push further. If we protect workers, we would have less forced labor. You are completely correct. And it is the erosion of labor standards and the erosion of labor protections across the board that allow abuses against workers along an entire continuum to continue and flourish. So at one end of this violation continuum is wage theft or non-payment of overtime. But as you move across the continuum, the labor violations become worse and worse until finally you hit a red line where everything on the other side of that red line is forced labor or involuntary servitude. And at the absolute end of that line, the very worst cases of all, actual chattel slavery. If we're not enforcing labor law at the easy end of that continuum, we will find it impossible to enforce labor law at the at the trafficking end of the continuum. Yeah. It's something that particularly at this time in the United States need to speak out against and be aware of the problem in the sliding scale. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time today, Martina, and your insight into this pernicious and pervasive problem. Thank you for the interview. you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.